0: All right, so am I, great music, thanks for singing along, we're glad that you're here today, great day, had a great Sunday, last Sunday, a lot of people came in spite of the time change and everything, which we appreciate, and then we had Fight Club Sunday night, got a great kickoff there, Uh, over 240 men signed up cool stuff. We're just uh, jazzed about all that. And we almost got out of that Fight Club kickoff without any broken bones, but not quite. But it was close. And so everything went went great. Today, we've got a brand new series starting that's going to take us up to Easter called The Road to the Cross. And we're realizing that about the last year of Jesus' life, he makes this statement, he starts telling his disciples, actually tells them repeatedly that he's going up to Jerusalem where he knows that he's going to be killed. And he and, and the disciples aren't quite getting it at first and they, they finally, as he keeps saying that, they, they figure that out and he keeps moving that way and on his way to Jerusalem, even though he says that, scripture says he set his face, he determined to go to Jerusalem and give his life. It was a roundabout journey because he wasn't done with his teaching ministry. And so sort of he looped around in order to get there. But that's what we'll be talking about on Palm Sunday and Easter coming up in a few weeks. But on his journey that last year, one of the things that he was nailing down for us is a countercultural truth that it's hard for us to grasp because our culture says it's the other way. And religions say it's the other way. And even irreligious people, pagan people think it's the other way. So it's counterculture to every culture. And it's that truth that I want to make sure that we have nailed down today before we move on in this process on the road to the cross. And that's all about so, what Jesus says on the road and why it matters to us because it does. This countercultural truth that, that we're going to look at today, it's important because it's actually the key to the answer to the biggest question that we have in life, the most important question that we face in life. And that is the countercultural truth regarding merit, Or mercy, goodness, or mercy, morality, or mercy. And we'll kind of unpack that. So he introduces this topic with a parable that he tells his followers. And a parable is a short story that Jesus would use to teach a spiritual truth. And remember, it's the last year of his life, so there's a lot of people following Jesus. But what I want you to know is this, and, and sometimes we breeze right past this. This is the, We're going to look at the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. But what we miss a lot of times is the way that's introduced to us by Luke. He tells us that Jesus has all these people around him, but he actually turns to a group of people, a certain group of people, and he directs the parable to them. He says, hey... You guys, no, you guys, you guys standing over here, you need to hear this story. So that's what he does. I want to pick it up in Luke chapter 18, invite you to turn there uh, or go with your device uh, to Luke 18, or if you're using a Bible on the chair rack in front of you, it's page 1046. Luke 18, and we're going to begin with verse 9, paying attention to who the parable is addressed to. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. And so he's focusing on, he grabs these people and says, Hey, you need to hear this story about two guys. So it's a two guys story. You need to hear this story about two guys. And then it starts in the next verse, verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. So here's a perfect example in Jesus' story to illustrate a truth. He's got two guys, and the first guy is a guy who is coming to God, he's at the temple, he's there to pray to God, but he approaches God with merit. He approaches God on the basis that he is a good man, is how this plays out. And i got to tell you, today, Pharisees get a bad rap because we view them in the lens of their opposition to Jesus at the end of his life. But in reality, in the first century, nobody thought that. If anybody were to ask anybody in Jesus' day who's going to go to heaven, everybody would point to the Pharisees. They're the ones who knew the law. They're the ones who studied the law. That's the, the Bible, the Old Testament for them. They studied the Bible. They knew the Bible. They memorized the Bible. They tried to follow the Bible. They were way more religious and way more concerned with following God probably than any of us. That was a Pharisee. And they did good things. And then in the, in the story, Jesus points out that the Pharisee then names a couple of things. He says, not only thanks God that I'm not like these guys, not only that, I fast twice a week. He talks about the two things, by the way, that God's followers should do and don't want to do. You know, I fast twice a week, and I give 10%. Of everything I have. I fast twice a week and I tithe of everything that I get. It, what is it? Fasting and giving. I mean, you know, it's, it's the tough things that he points out to us. And so it's pretty impressive, everything that he's saying. And I want to point out that we can look at this prayer, though, in a couple of different ways. If it wasn't for what Jesus said at the beginning and the end, what the guy prays, it really is a pretty good prayer. in this sense. A lot of us who are believers will sometimes look at somebody else who's wrecked their lives because of sin, or you know, maybe that's habitual sin or addiction or this or that, or you know, one time said doesn't matter. you know their, their lives they're just wrecked. And we as believers will look at them. And sometimes we'll think, wow, that, by the way, is exactly what my life would be like if I didn't have God in my life. That's exactly how my life would be, but for the grace of God. That's exactly where I would be right now if it wasn't for God's grace. How many of you pray, pray, you notice that, that you see people like that, and you're thinking, that's exactly, Anybody? that's better. All right. Yeah. That we look and we say, yeah, that's how I would be if it wasn't for God. That's exactly how I would have wrecked my life at this point if it wasn't for God. So when we look at it that way, you know, what he's praying is not bad. He's saying, God, thank you that I'm not like this, 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 and this. And then he says, hey, I do this and I do this. And those, by the way, are good things. Fasting, giving, you know, so good, good stuff. And he's doing all this, and and we could say, hey, that's a good prayer, and we could give him a benefit of the doubt how you read this, except for the way Jesus introduces it and the way Jesus wraps it up. Jesus is telling him, hey, don't bother giving this guy the benefit of the doubt. Really, he's saying he's good, because he's comparing his goodness with somebody else. Hey, God, I'm not like these other people, this, 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 and this, and I'm not like that guy either, and I do this and this. So he's basing his goodness on the wrong thing. Um, Then Jesus talks about the other man in verse 13. and The other guy doesn't approach God that way he approaches God in a completely different way. It's the tax guy, but the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, "God, be merciful to me, the sinner." And so completely different approach. And I mentioned earlier that today Pharisees probably get a bad, they get a bad rap, a worse rap than they deserve probably because of the way we view them today. Tax collectors are just the opposite, by the way. We don't see them bad enough today because these guys were traitors to their country. They made themselves rich off of abusing other people financially. They swindled, they overcharged, they lined their pockets, they were working for the enemy. I mean, the occupying power, they were funding the army that oppressed them. I mean, they were hurting their own neighbors, that was a tax collector. And remember, Jesus, he's... Uh, we, we, can, we can look at somebody's life, right? And we can see that sometimes people get involved in things and then sin just blows up their life. That may have happened to you. Or we see that in other people's life. It happens all the time. Where we're just standing by, it, and if it's not us, we just see sin blowing up somebody's life. And when that happens, a lot of times... People are, when they find themselves in that situation, I mean, their life just crumbles around them, they lash out a lot of times with anger, and it's, they blame people, right? Well, it's this person, if it wasn't this, we've heard it all before, right? It's this, if it wasn't for this, if this happened, and they don't take responsibility. And if there's no one else to blame, who do they blame? God. God, how could you let this happen to me? God, this isn't fair. What I appreciate about the guy that Jesus presents in the story is he's beyond all that, right? I don't know if that was a part of how he is reacting in the past. Who knows? But right now, he gets it. I'm responsible. I'm jacked up. I'm a sinner. My only hope is mercy. You see, Jesus is telling a story about two men. And it's not a story about a good man and a bad man. It's a story about two bad men, but only one of them knows he's bad. That's the story that Jesus is telling. Now, Jesus is teaching through this that our goodness doesn't work, that we actually all need mercy. And the next verse, verse 14, the way he wraps this story up, is one of the most terrifying verses in Scripture. And one of the most comforting verses in Scripture. Kind of weird that way, all right? Verse 14. So he, Jesus has told this story to this group of people, and now he wraps the story up. He says it this way. I tell you, this man went to his house justified. Well, we all feel good about that. Oh, who? The tax man, the bad man. The bad man went to his house right with God. He's justified. So that's good. It's the next phrase that's scary. Rather than the other. What does that mean? The Pharisee left. He had his prayer at the temple. He's a good moral man, but he goes away from the temple not right with God. He goes away from the temple heading for hell, even though he follows God religiously. So what is going on? And then the rest of the verse. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, Scripture's telling us that for us to be with and share a kingdom with a holy and righteous God, that we have to be right with God. We have to be righteous. But Scripture's also teaching us that none of us are. That's the problem. That this upstanding Pharisee prayed, but he did not leave right. The other guy did. The point is, hey, we all need mercy, Because for for all of us, our goodness doesn't get it. And so why is Jesus teaching this parable? Because he's giving us the answer to the biggest question in life. And then it's interesting because right after he says this parable, as he's moving on back on his journey to Jerusalem, another man runs up to him and and has this inner with Jesus. Now, this encounter with Jesus is recorded by three different gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I'm reading this out of Luke, but we get more, you know, each guy adds different information, different stuff that we know about this, like the fact that he ran up to Jesus. That's not in Luke, but we know that happened. So this man runs up to Jesus, he interrupts Jesus, and then he, and he's a very well-respected guy, We find out from all three that he's rich, that he's young, and that he's a leader in the community, a ruler, rich, young ruler. And he then, he's kind of bold. He does it respectfully, but he gets right to the point. He cuts through the chase, runs up to Jesus, catches Jesus, cuts through the chase, and asks Jesus the question that everybody wants to know, but they're afraid to ask. And here it is. As we see that breaking out in verse 18 of Luke 18. The ruler questioned him saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This is the most important question for all of us. What do I need to do to be right with God? What do I need to do to go to heaven? He asks it, just flat out ask it. Then Jesus, rather than just flat out answering, Jesus answers him with a twist. And this twist is to point the rich young ruler to the correct answer. He's helping the rich young ruler see the real answer. So he answers with a twist in verse 19. He says, and Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Boom. That's actually the answer right there. But this guy, he's like, well, what do you, call? you know, he doesn't know how to respond to that. So boom, Jesus challenges this guy on his concept of goodness. He actually gives him the answer in a kernel right there. But then he continues, and then the rest of his answer is according to how this rich young ruler thinks. So he's giving the man the answer the way the man thinks about goodness and what it takes to go to heaven. Next verse, verse 20. Jesus continues. verse says, hey, why do you call me good? No one's good except for God alone. Then he says, you know the commandments, because this is a good, moral, upstanding, leading citizen. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. So gives him a list of commands. And why is Jesus saying this? Well, Jesus is doing what we do sometimes. Uh, we sometimes ask people, have you ever asked somebody if they think they're a good person? It's sort of a, a thing we do. We do this in public sometimes. Uh, I've been out with some of you out at the fairgrounds or different, or sometimes I'm up at the rack and I'll say this, you know, just ask the question, do you think you're a good person? How do you think most people answer that question? Not everybody, it's interesting the ones that don't, it's really easier to talk to them. But 90% of people say, yeah, yeah I'm, and sometimes they'll throw in a qualifier, I'm basically a good person. Yeah, I think I'm pretty good, I think I'm a good person. They want you to know, I'm, I'm good, I, I think I'm good, and you're gonna think I'm good too. I'm a good person. But then to challenge that, what do we say? You know, if, if you ever get into a conversation, it's kind of fun to do. You should try it sometime. You know, people say, Yeah, well, what do you think? I say, Well, if you're good enough, you go, Well, are you a good person? Yeah, I'm a good person. And then you say, Well, based on what? And then they start listing out a bunch of things that they do. But then you say, Yeah, but who says those are good? I mean, you're thinking those are good. You've picked out some things that you th- and so you're doing that. But who says? And then you say this, and you've heard me say this, So this is all old stuff for most of you. You know, hey, I can give you a good person test, an ancient test that's over 3,000 years old. And that usually perks their interest, which is just the Ten Commandments, but don't even tell them that. Just say, ancient test, 3,000 years old. And they're like, oh, can, I, can, I, can we try it? And they'll say, yeah. And then you say, have you ever lied? And they say, Ever? Yeah, ever have you ever lied? Well, yeah. I've lied. And then you just go down the list, right? It, Jesus is giving them he's giving the rich young ruler the good person test. You know the commands, do the commands. And then the guy reacts but the the difference with the young ruler is after he hears the test, he's way more confident than most people that we talk with cuz he he's he's like, "Yeah, I got those. Nailed it. So what happens is most people answer the biggest question in life wrong, just like the rich young ruler does. Cuz they're doing it with merit, with goodness. And so verse 21, here's how he responds. The rich young ruler says, "Hey, and he said, "All these things I have kept from my youth." He said, "I've I've done the good stuff." Now, we would expect that maybe Jesus would push back and say, really, you've never in your life twisted the truth, not even once? But Jesus doesn't, that's what I would do. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus, trying to connect with this guy, goes a different route. This guy thinks he's kept the law. And what's interesting about this And people who were really big on the Ten Commandments, which they were, and and so should we, but they were more big on it in the first century, they might have noticed, hey, Jesus only threw out four of the commands. There's 10 of those, you know. And he only threw out four. And not only that, he threw them out from the second half of the Ten Commandments, which is kind of interesting because actually the first part of the Ten Commandments are more important. And so you might wonder about that. And the guy should be wondering about that. And probably the crowd that's standing around, they're probably kind of wondering about, well, that was odd. He just threw out four of those. And they're actually all about relationships with people, not really with God. And it's the God question that the guy's asking. So kind of interesting. But here's what happens. Jesus loves him enough. How do we know he loves him? Mark tells us that. Jesus looks at him after this guy answers this way. All these things I've kept from my youth. Jesus isn't put off by that answer. Jesus looks at him and loves him and loves him enough to push back. But he pushes back in a different way than we typically would. Here's what he does. He says, verse 22, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he had heard these things, this is the young guy, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. He led a comfortable, not as comfortable a life as we all live, but he was rich and led a comfortable life. And Jesus challenges him then with this other thing. And it almost sounds like Jesus is throwing this out as a way that this man could do a thing that would earn him heaven. That's what it sounds like. Hey, you want heaven? Oh, you've done all the good stuff? Well, there's just one more thing you need to do. Sell all your possessions and give it to the poor and you'll have heaven. And by the way, come and follow me. But that is not what Jesus is teaching. It sounds like it. But not, how do we know that? Number one, Jesus never says this to anybody else. Sell everything, give it to the poor. you got to divest yourself of all wealth. He never says that. As a matter of fact, we know in the very next chapter, right after this incident, he goes to Jericho and he talks to Zac, uh, Zacchaeus. And we already, already talked about that about a month ago. And, interacts, and, and that guy becomes a believer. And what does he do? He gives half of his money to the poor. Well, he got a great deal. Because, I mean, he got, he got to keep half his money. This other guy, he doesn't get to keep anything. That's not the point. That doesn't save you. With Zacchaeus, that was the result. But when Jesus is challenging this guy, give away all your money, he's helping him reevaluate his own idea of goodness. Because, and, and we all need to do that because we all overestimate our goodness. We all overestimate our goodness. And so he mentions, like I said, four of the last five, but then he here's what Jesus is saying. "You think you're keeping the law by saying you've kept these four commands. But the most important commandment is to have no God before God, no other gods before me, right? By the way, Jesus is God. He hinted that when he said, why do you call me good? Is Jesus good? Yeah. It's only because of one reason. He's God. But anyway, I digress. So he's telling him, hey, you think you're keeping the law, but you're actually not keeping the first most important command. And we see that in his refusal he leaves bummed out. He doesn't do it. He doesn't follow Jesus. He doesn't give his money away. And Jesus is not so much requiring that. What he's saying is, you think you're following, you think you're following the commandments, but you don't have the first commandment down. Love me first. You have other gods in your life, and that's the problem with all of us. We are all capable of making anything a god in our life and putting it over God, the real God. We make little gods, and they become more important to us than the real God of our life, and that's what Jesus is pointing out to this man, and he shows that in his refusal. None of us, are good. And, and here's what our culture doesn't understand. God doesn't owe us anything. God doesn't owe us anything. He's given us life, and we've rebelled against him. God doesn't owe us anything. Here, here's the thing. In our culture, here's how this plays out, sort of like this decade, this decade, decade, well, dec, de- decade, 10 years span. Yeah, this is how this plays out. People are desperate to be good and to be seen as good. But they don't have an objective standard. They don't want to use the Ten Commandments as a standard because that implies all kinds of stuff. You've got to put God first in your, you know, they're not up for all that no stealing, they're up for that one, but not very many other ones, all right? So they're desperate to show their goodness, but because there's no standard of goodness, they then feel compelled to virtue signal goodness to other people. And they do that by joining a cause or finding, you know, a good cause to be a part of and letting other people know that they're part of that. And they virtue signal in order to help themselves, help them to see themselves as good, but also to help other people to see them as good. But the problem is all of us as humans, we have this tendency to want people to see us good, but we just we define goodness by our own standard. And nobody else defines it exactly like we do. And so we're desperate for people to see us good because we have a standard that's slightly different than everybody. So we virtue signal. And then we have this craving that everybody would get it. Don't you understand I'm good? And then people tend to react emotionally to things or causes. And then they will give to those causes, which are usually about helping people. And so they'll help people, and they'll tell people they're helping people. But a lot of times, they do things emotionally to help people that in the long term actually hurts those same people. Does this make sense? It's the the needles to drug addicts would be an example of that. You know, we provide things for them. We think we're helping them. But if we just think about it a little longer, we realize in the long run that hurts them. And why does that keep happening? Because nobody's really focused on the long term. They're focused on the near term. I'm doing something good. Everybody watch me. I'm doing something good. And we should all agree this is good. But when it doesn't work in the long term, why does that keep happening? Because that's not the point. The point really isn't to help people in the long term. It's to feel good about helping people right now. Does any of that make sense to you? This is what we tend to do as human beings. That's just the way it plays out today. But we all tend to do this. What's happening there? Why isn't that working? Because it's really more about us and us being seen as being good than it is about helping somebody in the long term, which sometimes is, is doing things that may look kind of mean, but then we don't look good. That makes, that's the best way I can explain it. But this is how things play out in our life because we're desperate for people to recognize that we're good. And in a sense, we want to be good. We do want to be good, but we only want to be good according to the way we define goodness. Not the objective definition of goodness, because the only way goodness is actually defined, it ha- good, the definition, the standard of goodness has to come outside of us. It has to be objective, not subjective to every person, because then all of our standards of goodness are different. And it creates all these dynamics in our culture. Goodness is defined by God, and we do not meet the criteria. That's what God's telling us. So on the road to the cross, he meets this guy, and Jesus is answering this most important question How am I right with God? How do I go to heaven? And the answer is mercy. The answer is you don't earn it, you don't merit it. I mean, think about it. The guy asks, What do I need to do to go to heaven? Jesus says, Be good, gives him the law. The guy says, I am good. And then Jesus says, No, you're not. Only I am good. It's kind of how this goes. That's what's happening here. We're all rebellious sinners, and it's impossible for us to get to heaven on our own by doing things. We all need mercy, every one of us, in the first century and today, all of us. And that's why sometimes we ask questions like this. You know, We talked about the other question. Sometimes we'll ask people, because we're trying to figure out, what are you relying on for your salvation? So we ask. It's kind of a weird question. You've all heard it. How many have heard this question? If you were to die today on your way home, you know, you tragic car accident, boom, you didn't think it was going to happen, you died, and then you found yourself standing at the gate of heaven, and God's there, and he asks you, why should I let you in? By the way, this is not going to happen theoretical. Let's say this happens. You may die, but that's not going to happen afterwards. So theoretical, this happens, right? How many heard a version of that question? Yeah, we all hear this. And so the question is, God's saying, "Why should I let you in?" The answer is critical. Because there's a thousand, well there's tens of thousands of answers. There's only one right answer. And and so right now, just to make this point, I want you to be thinking about this. God is you just died in a car accident. You very surprised, you didn't see that coming. And the next thing you know, in a flash, in a moment, you are in the presence of God, and God, never would have guessed it, says, hey, why should I let you in, friend? What's your answer? What do you verbalize out of your mouth next? (laughs) That's right. Because if your answer starts with well because i've tried and then fill in the blank it doesn't matter what comes after that well i've tried it's the wrong answer because that's merit that's goodness well, I tried to be good. Well, I tried to follow you. Well, I, I tried to pray, and, you know, I did pray, and I talk to you all the time, and I go to Grace Community Church, and I was baptized right in front of a bunch of people, and this, and this, and we come up. And any of that stuff, all that is wrong. Those are all good things, but good things doesn't get it. The right answer is, yeah, I don't, I don't. Why should I let you in? You shouldn't let me in, except for Jesus. I don't deserve heaven. Couldn't deserve heaven. But Jesus died to pay for my sins. Jesus erased all my sins the day I had faith in him. Not because I deserve it. He just says that's what he would do if I would put my faith in him. And I did that. So I only have Jesus. The only thing we have is the mercy of Christ. And that's why Jesus, all through this series, is on his way to go to Jerusalem where he will allow himself to be killed, tortured to death, bleed out on the cross, die. And in doing that, he'll pay for our sins because our sins, the right consequence of my sins and your sins, is that we would spend eternity separated from God. But Jesus died for us and cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's all what Jesus has done for us. And that's why, by the way, that Christians, they're the only people who can say, I know I'm going to heaven and not be arrogant. Because true Christians I'm not saying every Christian says it in a non-arrogant way. I'm saying but we're the only ones that can do that not arrogant. Why? Because I don't deserve heaven. I didn't I'm not good enough to go to heaven. I didn't do a good enough things to get to heaven. And nor could I have It's all grace. Do I know I'm going to heaven? I know I'm going to heaven based on what Jesus did, not me. I just responded to his offer. I just put my faith, my trust in him. I didn't do anything physically to make that happen. I just believed. And as we get into this series leading us up to Easter, the road to the cross, I just felt that we needed to start kind of reviewing what happens on this road that's a little more basic that answers this biggest question in life. Because here's the thing. A whole bunch of people grow up in Christian homes and they never really understand this most important question and answer. That it's not about what we do. It's about what Christ has done And us putting our faith in Him. And so I want to take a moment of reflection. If you would just bow your heads for a minute, uh, just humor me on this. And basically, I'm just saying that so you don't have any distractions. But it's also best to pray that way so you don't have any distractions. But I just want you to think through your life and try to figure out, when did I shift from thinking that I had to do good things in order to go to heaven to understanding the truth that I can't do enough good things to go to heaven, only Jesus, it's only Jesus, only Jesus dying on the cross could could get me into heaven. And And that only happens through my belief. When did you stop trusting that you were could do some good things and start putting everythings on Jesus alone, trusting Jesus alone, believing, having faith on Jesus alone. And if that's a little murky for you, some people can can recall the exact moment or day or season in their life. If that's a little murky for you, then the next thing is, then are you sure that you've done that? Are you sure that you've broken out of this pattern, this cultural belief that we all believe that it's good works that gets us there have you broken out of completely out of that it's not enough to believe Jesus existed it's not enough to believe Jesus died on the cross it's not enough to believe Jesus died on the cross for our sins you can believe all that is your faith in Jesus and if you're not sure do it today Put your faith in Jesus today. Put your belief in Jesus today. And if you're doing that today, you should, I think it would be good to verbalize that to God. And you could do that in this way. You just follow along. Make it it your prayer. Something like this. God, I admit I know that I'm a sinner, that I've sinned against you. And God, I have no chance of going to heaven what I do but I also understand that you love me and because of that Jesus came and died for me to pay my sin penalty so that they are removed from me through faith and right now God I'm putting my faith in Jesus and Jesus alone that he's all I got right now I'm committing my life to him in Christ's name amen